Much of Jewish history has been tragedies, oppressions, tortures, and there's no shortage of creativity when it comes to killing Jews. And ironically, we were told about it. It was foretold prophetically in two parshas in the Torah. And in parshas Kisovo, this week's parsha, the Torah says clearly what's going to happen. If you listen to my mitzvahs, you're going to be exalted, you'll be holy, you'll be revered, you'll be the great Jewish nation. But if not, it's going to be very, very bitter, very difficult. And the Torah is very, very explicit and very clear, detailed as to what is going to happen. And along the process, when the Torah is going through the various calamities that are going to face the Jewish nation, the Torah says the why. Why is it that you're suffering? And why is it that you're in exile? The reason for it is because you didn't serve Hashem with joy in your heart, when you had abundance. This is why it all happened. Why did it all happen? Because you didn't serve Hashem with great joy in your heart. That's why you were exiled. That's why everything occurred. And that Pasuk is very difficult to read. Why? Because I would imagine there's much that the Jewish nation have done wrong. And it's clear from the Nevi'im that there was much to blame. And it doesn't seem to be simcha, meaning it doesn't seem to be that the problem with the Jewish people were we weren't joyful enough. The first base of Mikdash was destroyed, we know, for very overt and very clear avirs, gile raya, domim, very, very real egregious sins. So why is the Torah saying it's all going to hinge on this one thing? Because you didn't serve Hashem with joy in your heart. And if you think that it doesn't mean it literally, you look in Rabbeinu Bachai, one of the Rishonim, and says that's exactly what the Pasuk is saying. A person has to do all the mitzvahs with tremendous joy in his heart and very pure kavana. And, and then Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, and I'll show this to you, I'll show you examples of this. If Ruvain had known, had Ruvain known that Hashem was going to write about him, Ruvain had Ruvain known that Hashem was going to write in the Torah and that Ruvain saved Yosef, and Ruvain would have taken Yosef on his shoulders brought him to his father's house. But that's not what happened. And when Yosef was, being, when the brothers wanted to kill Yosef, and Ruvain in fact said, put him in the pit. Don't, let's not our hands spill blood. Put him into the pit. But Ruvain didn't actually save him. Had Ruvain known that the Torah is going to call him Yosef's savior, Ruvain would have done much more. He wouldn't put him in the pit. He would have put him on his shoulders and walked him straight to his father's house. And Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says even further, I'll show you another example, showing you how mitzvahs have been done besimcha and with tremendous kavana. <clears throat> Aaron a coin. When Aaron went out to b- greet his brother, had he known that the Torah was going to write about him, and <clears throat> Rav Samach Belibo, had, the Torah, had Aaron known that, he would have meet, met Moshe Benu with tambourines, with a dancing, with dances, with, with a band. Yes, he granted, he went out to meet Moshe. But it wasn't with a tremendous joy. Had he known that the Torah was going to write about him, that he would, he greeted him with simcha, <clears throat> Aaron would have come out with much more joy in his heart. And again, Rabbi Nochai concludes, therefore you see that mitzvahs have to be done besimcha ubetov levav. Now, let's understand this, Rabbi Nochai. Again, the first problem is and that simcha is nice, being joyful is wonderful, but it doesn't seem to be the pivot point of Jewish history. But even more, in the two examples that he brought, they're very problematic. Let's look at Ruvain for a minute. The Ramban explains us Ruvain had a very particular fear. You see, Yosef did a lot of things to make the brothers suspicious of him. 
Yaakov appointed Yosef to be the head of the brothers, even though Yosef was the youngest. <clears throat> Yet he had a certain wisdom, and everything that the brothers did wrong, Yosef reported to his father. And it looked very clear to the brothers that Yosef was plotting for <clears throat> Yaakov to be angry with them, to actually end their being part of the Jewish nation, for Yosef alone to be the father of the Jewish people. That was the, their understanding. And they assumed that he was a plotting, Yosef was plotting to get them killed. And Yosef gave them a lot of evidence. The Ramban explains that Ruvain realized that they were wrong. <clears throat> the brothers sat as a, as a Beisdin. They sat down and Paskin that Yosef is a Rotseach. He's trying to get us killed. And they Paskin they said he's Chayv Misa. But Ruvain knew they were wrong. But Ruvain was afraid <clears throat> if he would say, you guys are wrong, you're dead wrong, they would never listen to him. He said to them something clever. Put him in the pit. Let us not be the ones to spill blood. He'll die on his own, but let us not do it. But again, the Ramban explains why he said that. He said that because he thought if he went further, he'd accomplish nothing. So what does Rabbeinu Machai says? If he knew that the Torah would write about him, they saved Yosef, he would have taken Yosef on his shoulders. It would have been the wrong strategy. It would have been unintelligent. Why is the Torah saying that? And even more problematic, the second case that Rabbeinu Machai brought is even more difficult to understand. Why? Aaron coin wore the Hoshim Mishpat. Why is it? Because he proved himself to have the most pure heart. If you remember the events as the Chumash describes it, Hashem comes to Moshe Beno in the snare, and Hashem says to Moshe, you're going to be the leader of the Jewish nation, and Moshe Beno refuses. Aaron is my older brother. Aaron is the one you've always appeared to. Aaron is the one who always spoke to the Jewish nation. I don't want to usurp his position. And Hashem said, no, you have to do it. Back and forth, Moshe said, no, yes, no, yes, no, for seven days. For seven days, Moshe Rabbeinu said, I don't want to take away that covenant. And Hashem said, you don't understand, Aaron is so pure, it's not going to bother him. I'm going to show you. And in fact, when Aaron Akoin comes out, he was joyful in his heart. So he won that test. Aaron went out with joy in his heart. He wasn't jealous, even though his younger brother was taking the position of honor. He didn't have jealousy, and for that he got to wear the Hoshimish, but he was a Kohen, and was considered so pure. So what does Rabbeinu Bachai mean, that had Aaron known that the Torah is going to write about him, that he goes out with Simcha, he would have gone out with more joy, with, with Tupim and Macholos, he would have gone out with tambourines and dances. He went out with joy, he conquered the most difficult <coughs> test of covered. Number one, what do we mean that Ruvain would have done differently? And number two, what, do, what does Rabbeinu Bachai mean, that Aaron would have acted differently? It doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to be accurate to what happened. So to understand this concept, I think we have to understand something basic to the human. And to do that, let me take you back in history a little bit. Throughout the history of mankind, of civilization, most people barely eked out a living. The average person had enough to eat, maybe not much more, and that was thousands of years of history. People produced a tailor-made clothing for himself. A farmer <clears throat> produced his own food. But the idea of industry, <clears throat> the idea of producing goods, was not part of the world. The Industrial Revolution changed all of that. The Industrial Revolution turned individual farmers into commerce brokers. They produced tremendous amounts of food, bring it to market. <clears throat> the Industrial Revolution turned a tailor who would make a single suit for a single man into a factory owner and the industrial revolution created systems factories 
where the output of mankind didn't double, didn't triple, so exponentially expanded that the life that we live today is so vastly different than people did 500 years ago. There's so much more material goods and so much more production. There's so much more available, and not just because of technology, but because of the output of the human race. The output of mankind today is beyond description. Factories can produce tens of thousands of suits in an hour. That which took a village to do back in the old days would take them years. And the output of man really has changed dramatically. But here was the problem. The Industrial Revolution really began in principle maybe in the late 1500s, the 1600s, but there was no energy source to provide. Men began producing goods. Machines were something that was a concept, but electricity wasn't discovered until centuries later, and there was no energy source. So in a real sense, the Industrial Revolution was held back because, yes, you have the idea of putting one man to produce much more or put a team of men to produce, but there was no energy source and nothing to move the machinery, and it was quite difficult to get the goods anywhere else. That changed in 1769 when James Watts invented the steam engine. The steam engine became the energy source for factories to produce. It was the electricity of the day. It was the energy source. It eventually was harnessed to be the power to move a locomotive. And in those days, in the early 1800s, all of the energy was produced from steam. Steam engines would drive the turbines. Steam engines would drive the factories. And in fact, steam engines were so powerful that they could move mighty locomotives 30, maybe 40 miles an hour on these steel tracks, and it changed the course of mankind. However, here's the observation. Steam isn't much. Steam is vaporous. In fact, all steam is, is water that's changed, the structure's changed. It went from a liquid now to a gas. But if you think about what steam is, steam is nothing. However, when water hits the boiling point at 212, there's an energy, there's an expansion. The gas causes a tremendous expansion and needs to expand, and that energy is so powerful that if you harness it, it can move a locomotive. But here's the observation. If you take boiling water and bring it to 211 degrees, you will get nothing. If you bring it to 212, the boiling point, suddenly have a powerful steam engine. And the difference between 211 degrees and 212 degrees is all the difference in the world of changing the power source of mankind. However, here's the thought process. The difference between 211 and 212 is not much. It's not even really 1%. The difference between 211 and 212 is half of a percent of difference. But that half of a percent of difference makes such a difference that it powers a locomotive, powers the Industrial Revolution, because boiling water expands, but it has to hit that boiling point. And I think this concept is very, very profound, because many, many times people are lukewarm, maybe even hot, maybe even very, very hot, but if they stay at that range of 211, they never hit the boiling point, and they never become what they could have been. It's only when a person really hits that point, when they hit that boiling point, and suddenly the expansion, the potential of the human is, is so changed. And I'd like to show you an example of this. It's very, very eye-opening. 
most competitive sports are won by extremely small margins. But when I say extremely small margins, I mean extremely small. <clears throat> you look in the Olympics. So typically in the Summer Olympics, <clears throat> let's say swimming, usually won by about a half a second. The men's 800-meter run in, in 2004 Olympics was run won by 0.71th of a second. The men's long jump is won by, in, not inches, micro. We're talking about tiny little centimeters. <clears throat> the 2018 Winter Games, <clears throat> the women's speed skating, the 1,500-meter speed skating, was won by a third of a second. But if you'd like to know what a slim margin is, I'll bring you into one of the most interesting records in sports history. And Mark Spitz was the all-time gold medal winner. He had won seven gold medals for swimming, and this was considered a record that was unbeatable. This was 1972, and his record stood for 36 years. Until a young fellow, Michael Phelps, came along, and Michael Phelps did something incredible. He won seven gold medals in one Olympic game. And then he was at the eighth meet, the eighth swim. And this one, interestingly enough, was very, very tightly fought. And in fact, he won that. But would you like to know the margin that he won that by? He won that race by one hundredth of a second. He became the greatest gold medal winner in history by beating his opponent by one hundredth of a second. And when you see tiny little slivers of time make such a difference, you realize it's just a little bit more, a little bit more effort. And the common mistake that people make is it's the talented people, it's the exceptional people. But if you ask anyone in competitive sports, you know it's the one who works the hardest. <clears throat> talent is okay, talent is good, but it's the guys who work the hardest, the people who put their nose to the grindstone and work time after time, because typically the victories are on the slightest of margins. And I'll show you one more example of this where I find this really very, very compelling. In our community, we're not really familiar with this as a sport, but much of Midwest America and other parts of America, car racing is considered a big deal. And the Daytona 500, the Indianapolis 500, these are major car races. And let's look at the victories in it. Now, the, let's take the Daytona 500. It's a 500-mile race. It's basically racing around the track approximately 200 times, and it takes over three hours. In the past 10 years, the margin of victory has been by about one and a half seconds. That means they're going to race for 500 miles, and the winner, the winner takes a purse of about a million dollars or more, and the difference between victory and failure is a second and a half. But here's the most interesting thing. In 2007, the Daytona 500 was not won by 1.5 seconds. I got to watch a clip, and watch a video clip of it, and you could see the two cars were nose-to-nose as they're coming to the finish line, nose-to-nose. And as they passed the finish line, the announcer says, so-and-so won. And I said, what? What do you so-and-so won? He didn't win, they were tied. And then they played in slow motion. And in slow motion, you could see that one car was, I don't know, an inch, maybe two inches ahead of the other, and that race was won by two one-hundredth of a second. 500-mile race over three hours, and the guy wins by two one-hundredths of a second. And what you're seeing is examples where just a little bit more, just a tiny little addition makes all the difference in the world. 
211 degrees is very, very hot, but it doesn't emit steam. It's not at the boiling point. <clears throat> 212 it is, that's the point, and if you get to that point, everything changes, and I believe that's the answer to Ruvain. <clears throat> Ruvain looked at a situation that was grave. His brother, Yosef, was innocent, and his other brother wanted to kill him. But it was a serious situation. He didn't see an out. <clears throat> he didn't see his ability to stop them. They wouldn't believe him. He came up with the best he could. What? Let's let's put him in the boat. Let's not us kill him. Let him be killed by the Ishmaelim. Let's not us do it with our hands. Had he been at the boiling point, had he realized that the Torah is going to say about him that he saved his brother, he would have taken Yosef on his shoulders. Why? Because he would have been on fire and have more energy, and he would have seen that opportunity that he didn't see then. My Rebbe Roshiv Zetzal explained this Chazal that way. Ruvain was 211, but he wasn't 212. Had he been on fire, he would have seen the opportunity, he would have seized it, and literally would have taken Yosef on his shoulders and would have changed history. Yosef would not have been sold as a slave, but he didn't quite make it. He was only 211, and the difference between hitting the boiling point and not makes such a tremendous, tremendous difference. However, that doesn't really help us with understanding Aaron. Because Aaron Akoin went out to beat, meet his brother with great joy in his heart. He won. He won the fight for covet. There was no covet, no desire. His kid brother gets the ultimate position of being the Sarah Torah, and it doesn't it goes out with joy. <clears throat> Why is Rabbi Nuhai saying, had he known that the Torah would write about him <clears throat> that he was going out with joy, he would have gone out with even more joy. First of all, what would more joy make a difference? And he did he went out with joy. What does that mean? And to understand this, you have to understand a very, very basic concept. And that is that there's a real difference between cutting a salami and cutting a diamond. When you cut a salami, you cut thinner, thicker, a little bit here, it doesn't really matter because you're, you're cutting a salami. But when you cut a diamond, the cut makes a real, real difference. And let me explain to you exactly what I mean. In 1990, in the district of Zaire, which was then the Congo, a diamond was discovered. It was a rough diamond, but it was very, very unusual. <clears throat> it was very, very unusual because it weighed 777 carats. It was huge, a humongous diamond. And <clears throat> the diamond was extracted and brought up, <clears throat> and the bears realized potentially they might have the most remarkable diamond. They hired the Steinmetz <clears throat> group to cut it. The Steinmetz group sent their best diamond cutters, and they studied this diamond for three years. They x-rayed it, MRI, they used every imaginable laser, they put it under laboratory conditions, and after three years of studying the diamond, they arranged for the cutting. It wasn't done with metal, it was done with laser, and they pushed the button and emerged from that rough a 203 perfect diamond. Internally, an externally perfect diamond, it's now known as the Millennium Star, and it is considered one of the finest, finest diamonds ever to reach mankind's eyes. Now this diamond is so valuable, it has no price. I mean, they talk about $500,000 a carat, a million dollars a carat, but it really isn't true. It's a priceless diamond. It's perfect, flawless, in and out. But here's the point. What if this diamond's group didn't take three years? What if they took a couple of days, and they blew it, and they missed the cut? it would not have emerged as a 203-carat flawless diamond. It would have <coughs> scrumbled into a bunch of little diamonds and would have been common fare, and the Millennium Star wouldn't have been. But when you're cutting a 777-carat rough, 
You study it carefully. You plan it out. Because what you might potentially have is beyond description. Because cutting diamonds and cutting salami are very, very different things to do. The biggest mistake that we make is, we think of ourselves as, listen, I'm just a guy, a regular guy. I do actions, I say words, I do mitzvahs, I don't do mitzvahs. What does not matter? And the reason for that is because we live in a physical world. And the world that we live in, okay, what's the big deal? How much can you do change anyway? How much do things matter? It doesn't really matter. What we're not attuned to is the upper world. What we're not attuned to is the power of a single mitzvah. And last week we spent a lot of time discussing that every single mitzvah changes the upper world. It lights up the upper worlds. There's tremendous differences by one mitzvah. But it's not just one mitzvah. It's the nuances. It's the detail. When you do a mitzvah properly, what happens is it changes everything. It takes it from a diamond to a 200 carat diamond. And as great as Aaron was, and as much as he greeted his brother with Simcha, had he realized that the Torah was going to write about him, that he met his brother with joy in his heart, he would have come out with Tupim Machalas, who could have come out with a marching band, far more joy, and that would have made a significant difference. And what Rabbeinu Machai is teaching us is that energy, yes, 212 degrees is a huge difference, and it makes a difference in success or not, but in this world you'll never understand it. When you understand that mitzvahs carry tremendous impact in the upper world, they change things, but the nuances and the details are exact because what you're doing is lighting up cities, lighting up regions. You're changing the upper world in ways that you and I can't understand now because we're living in a physical body that blocks my sight. But what the Torah is revealing to us is every little ounce, every little extra part of energy makes a real difference. And that's exactly what he was what Rabbeinu Machai is saying to us. And with that being said, I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. If you would like to go into business, I have a very good business idea for you. If you'd like to make a lot of money, sell used exercise equipment. Why? Because everybody has that moment when they put on 20 pounds and they say, this is crazy, i got to do some other, and they go out and buy the elliptical or the treadmill or the rowing machine. And they get on it with a firm resolve, and they stay on it for two weeks, three weeks, two months, and then that piece of equipment becomes a glorified clothes hanger. And it sits there. And of course, if you go into the used business, you buy that $1,000 elliptical machine for $200, and then find somebody else who's in that moment that throws of, yes, let me buy it, and he's willing to spend $800, and you can make yourself a fortune because the vast majority of people who buy exercise equipment have a great resolve, but that resolve doesn't last. You ever wonder why that is? You see, my objective here is not to give you business advice. But you ever notice that great, great plans very quickly fail? And the reason for that is, is because all of us have that moment of inspiration. That moment where, let's go, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to diet, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to learn shots, I'm going to change, I'm going to... And that inspiration only lasts so long, and then it leaves, and the exercise equipment sits there. Last year's tshuva, drusha remains. My goal to learn more stops. And invariably what happens is the inspiration fades. Now, I'd like to share with you, that's endemic to the human. That's part of the human condition. Yet some people manage to win. You know how that is? Because they recognize that inspiration is something like bathing. you got to do it every day. Inspiration wears off. And just like inspiration wears off, so too does bathing. As Zig Ziglar likes to say, that's why we recommend doing it daily. 
And inspiration is something that you need to put into your essence daily. And I'd like to share with you something that I have found over and over in my life. My Rebbe, the Shiva Zatzal, used to say to us, I heard like ringing in my ears. You have to learn Musr every day. Every day, at least 20 minutes, at least 20 minutes. And I can tell you, most of my adult life, since the time I'm 19, I've learned Musr at least 20 minutes, a half hour, an hour, every single day. There was a short kufa, a short little period. I was a Rebbe in high school, and I was very busy. I was, don't get me wrong, I was learning hours and hours a day. I was even saying Musr Shemuzim, but for whatever the reason, I stopped learning a regular Seder Musr. And when I look back on that short time period, I realized I made some of my worst mistakes, and I did things then that I would never do. Why? Because I wasn't learning Musr. But what do you mean? I, I knew these concepts already. I learned Musr for at least 10, 15 years before. What happened? The answer is, if you're not focused on it, if you're not living it, the inspiration goes. And when the inspiration goes, you forget that I'm here for a few short years. And you forget that this world is just the prose door, this is just the hallway. You start getting comfortable in this world. And what glitters and glorifies in this world it seems very important. And suddenly you lose your focus and you lose your balance. The Mishnah Brewer tells us a halacha. A Jew is obligated to learn Musr every single day. Every day. Every day. Why? Because that's the greatest antidote to the Yetzirah. If you can learn it from a Musa Sefer, I highly recommend it. If the Musa Sefer doesn't work, you find other alternatives. You can listen to a schmooze, you can listen to various speakers. But find yourself a way to daily inspire yourself. Because you see, we all get that moment of inspiration, that moment where I get it, where I'm 212 degrees, and I'm really on fire. And I'll make a plan, and I'll decide I'm going to. And certainly we're coming up on Rosh Hashanah, we're coming up in Yom Kippur, and I think everyone has that moment when they look back on the year and they say, wait a minute, what did I do? Okay, I'm a year older. Am I a year smarter, better? <clears throat> Are my midos improved? Have I learned more? Have I done more? And all of us reach that moment we say, that's it, I'm going to. And we have that resolve, I am going to, and we make that Kabbalah. The difference of whether that resolve sticks or not is one thing, if you keep the inspiration going. You see, the resolve is there, and the decision is there. <clears throat> but if you're not going to daily inspire yourself, guess what? It'll last for a week, it'll last for a month, but it'll become like used exercise equipment. It's going to sit there and it's not going to move. If you learn Musr on a daily basis and you review, why am I here? What's life about? <clears throat> Just a few short years and I'm going to stand in front of Hashem and I'm going to be for eternity what I shape myself into. When you focus on that, review it again and again, time after time, it starts changing your perspective. And you start realizing it and you start looking at the world in a different way. But it has to be on a daily basis. I think what Rabbeinu Machai is sharing with us is 211 degrees is very warm, but it's not going to change anything. <clears throat> when it hits the boiling point, and that's when a steam locomotive can move because it's expanding, it hit that magical point. And Olympic medals are won by fractions of seconds because it's that little extra effort, that little extra push that makes the difference. And the key to it is staying on, staying with it, because resolve is great <clears throat> unless you stay with it it doesn't remain. And I believe that's why Rabbi Ochai says, <clears throat> Ruvain would have been different. Why? Because at 212 degrees, he would have seen the opportunity. And <clears throat> what he didn't see, he thought he couldn't do it, he thought he couldn't convince the brothers. Had he been really on fire, he would have seen the opportunity, and he would have seized Joseph, put him on his shoulders and walked him through. <clears throat> Aaron also would have been much greater. Yes, it was great. <clears throat> what Aaron accomplished was wonderful, but he could have been even more, because in the world to come, changes, minor, minor changes, create tremendous, tremendous changes. 
And I believe that's what Rabbi Mechai is teaching us. And we answered two of the questions. However, we didn't answer the other question. And that is, what does Simcha have to do with this? The Pesach says the entire Jewish history pivots on this point. If you have happiness, then it'll be great. And if you don't, you're going to exile. What does happiness have to do with it? This happened to you because you didn't serve Hashem with joy in your heart. Well, what does that have to do? What does joy have to do with it? If you'd like to understand the answer to this question, I'd like to share with you a perspective. Sheldon Adelson is one of the classic rags-to-riches story. He was born the son of immigrants in Chicago. He's a very entrepreneurial fellow. He began his first business at 11. He sold that business, started another business. In the end of his career, he owned 50 businesses. He eventually started the Comdex Computer Show, which was a very large computer show in Las Vegas. He couldn't find hotels big enough. He built his own hotel. And eventually he built the Sands Venetian Company, and that was his company. And in 2003, Sheldon Adelson did something interesting. At that point, he was a very wealthy individual. His net worth was approximately $1.5 billion. He owned the Sands Venetian, which is a huge hotel industry. But Forbes magazine explains that in 2003, Sheldon Adelson took the Sands Venetian public. And in the next year and a half, his personal wealth increased by 750%. He went from being a very wealthy man to the fifth, fifth wealthiest man in the world. And Forbes magazine, which they love to count other people's money, did the math. They say, if you'd like to know the wealth increase of Sheldon Adelson during that year and a half, he was earning approximately $1 million an hour. $1 million an hour. Now let me give you an observation of what that means. A million dollars. Could you imagine if I were earning a million dollars an hour? Wow! Imagine, you're opening up a Yomi, and by the time you close it, a million dollars richer. Whoa! You sit down, you go for a Shabbat Shluf, you wake up two million dollars richer. What? Life is amazing. Life is astonishing. A million dollars an hour. Wow! And that is called joy. But do you know what the most joyful moment a human being can ever experience is? And what's truly joyful to a human being is growth. And you know why that is? Because Hashem put us on a planet to do one thing, to change the essence of I. And the single most enjoyable activity a person can do is when they set a goal and they reach it. When you feel you're changing, when you feel you're growing. But you know why that's the most enjoyable activity you'll ever engage in? Because that's what your Creator put you here to do. Making a million dollars an hour feels great, but it's a pseudo-great. It feels great because it feels like I'm growing. My wealth is growing. But it's really a fake. When you're really growing internally, that's when your neshama sings, and that's when you and you are in sync, and there's an inner joy. But the only way you have that inner joy is when you recognize what you're doing. I believe what the Torah is teaching us is a fundamental foundational principle. And that is, if you do the mitzvahs with energy, with tremendous zeal, at 212 degrees, there's going to be a joy in your heart. Why? Because you know why you're here. You're living. You're alive. And if you're doing the mitzvahs without joy, you know what it means? You're not at 212. Because if you were really there, if you're really burning alive, if you're really right there at the boiling point, you'd feel the joy, you'd feel the tremendous happiness of being alive. But the fact that you don't feel that joy means you're not fully there. And mitzvahs that are done half-hearted, mitzvahs that are done just sort of like externally, don't have the impact, 
And it starts the downward spiral. The downward spiral of the Jewish nation begins at that point. If you're not alive, if you're not at 212 degrees, you start doing the mitzvahs in a lackadaisical way, you start going through the motions, whatever, and then they become weaker and weaker, and before you know it begins the downward cycle. The mitzvah of being happy is only a reflection of your recognition of what you're accomplishing, what you're doing. It's an inner joy, an inner peace, an inner happiness, because you and you are in sync. You know why you're here. You know, Shamas cries out with tremendous joy, but it does it because you're accomplishing, you're growing. And I believe that's a great principle that Rabbeinu Machai is teaching us. And this is the single change point of the Jewish nation. It's the future. But this point, being alive, being totally involved, being at the boiling point, 212 degrees, and what that means in plain, simple language is setting goals. Setting goals and holding myself accountable. Setting goals and constantly inspiring myself to reach those goals. <clears throat> Learning Musa every day. And when you do that, there's an inner joy. There's a simcha sachayim. And I'll close with one last thought. If you'd like to take the litmus test, if you'd like to know how you're doing at this thing called Judaism, how do you rate? Are you a tzaddik, a benoni? Where, where do you hold? I have that as a very simple litmus test. How much joy do you have in your life? Are you happy? <clears throat> now, don't get me wrong. Life has a lot of things and there's troubles and worries and sorrows. But is there an inner joy in your heart? And <clears throat> you wake up in the morning and say, let's go. And if there isn't, what that means is you're not practicing this religion right. Why? <clears throat> because if you knew the value of every mitzvah, and you knew that Hashem put you here to grow and accomplish, and then every mitzvah is far more than a million dollars an hour, you're changing the upper world, you're changing yourself for eternity, you'll be what you shape yourself into, and there'll be a joy, there'll be a fire, you'll be at 212 degrees, you'll be steam expanding. And if there isn't that inner joy, what that means is you're not quite there. You're not really, you're going through the motions, but you're not there. And I believe that this is a fundamental concept and something that we re- requires a lot of thinking about. Music